You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 6th of January 2022 on Monocle 24. Chaos in the US House of Representatives says the Speaker has so far failed to be elected 11 times and counting. Clashes between the Congolese army and Rwandan rebels, the ethics of weapons supply and this year's hot travel destinations. I'm Georgina Godwin and the Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you live from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. My panellists today, Laura Kramer and Tom Webb, will join me shortly, along with our Washington correspondent, Chris Chermack, to examine the state of democracy in the US. Phil Clark will give us the latest from Central Africa and we'll discuss the top travel destinations for 2023. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. Well, I'm joined today by Monocle 24 producer Laura Kramer and by our deputy head of radio, Tom Webb. Welcome to you both. Hi. Hello. Today is the 6th of January. Now, most of us will remember what happened on this date in 2021. But I wonder if this day is significant for either of you for any other reason today. Tom. Yeah, my phone reminded me this morning as I woke up in cold London that I was on the island of Cozumel, just off the coast of Cancun. And on this day last year, I swam with a manta ray, an enormous, beautiful beast. Uh, and, and swimming with something so gigantic in the ocean really moved me. So I will forever remember the 6th oh, of January. wonderful. And you've only got us two beasts in the studio with you now. <laughs> Laura, what were you doing on a significant date, a uh, uh, year on the 6th of January? Or indeed, what happened in the world on that date? You know, I actually very vividly remember the Nancy Kerrigan attack that happened in 1994 on this day when she was uh, attacked by Tanya Harding's ex-husband's hitman, which I think he had hired. So I very vividly remember the news stories and, and seeing her after, after it happened. So yeah, that's fresh in my mind. Extraordinary. Well, I wasn't actually around to witness this, but this was the day in 1066 when following the death of Edward the Confessor, my ancestor, Harold Godwin, was crowned as the new King of England and that sparked a succession crisis that eventually led to the Norman conquest of England. Is that a subtle hint that we should be bowing to you at Murray House? <laughs> Absolutely <Is> that... <laughs> not. Everybody's related to everyone. I was reading just today that Edward Norton's great-grandmother 12 times was Pocahontas. So, um, you know. You know what I say to that? Edward Norton, Nepo baby. <laughs> Absolutely. Really? That's exactly the headline, in fact. Well, let's go to, to uh, Edward Norton's birthplace and indeed the birthplace of Pocahontas. Two years ago on this day, there was a, almost another succession crisis with the attempted Donald conquest of America. Uh, do you remember where you were when you first heard about the Capitol riots? I was reporting on it from London uh, for the BBC and the story just completely took us by surprise and we couldn't get our reporters anywhere near it. The whole thing was just so dramatic. We were doing what we call stand-up meetings. Everyone was just standing at their desk looking at each other when usually the newsroom was quite sit-down and calm. So it was, I will forever remember reporting on it from London. And Laura, what about you? I was actually watching it uh, in Iowa because I had flown back from for the election to, to vote, but it was also during COVID times. And so I stayed in America a few extra months 
and I, I was watching it on TV also in horror, couldn't believe what's actually happening. Although, to be fair, I had also been there before the election, and at one point Donald Trump had actually flown into into my hometown in, in Iowa. And it was when he was doing the airport things that he was doing. And I just remember how many cars had come to come see him speak. It was, I cannot imagine, I cannot explain the kilometers long queue of people then along the side of the highway, what we call it in America, on these cornfields, basically. And and they had walked just to see a glimpse of Air Force One and everything. And it, it was mind-boggling. In that moment, I really thought that he was going to, to win the the election. And I think because Joe Biden was observing social distancing measures and doing all these things, trying to be responsible, whereas Donald was holding these rallies. I think the visual optics of it really created an idea and an image in people's minds that Donald was the natural winner of the election. And I think it's one of the reasons that so many people had kind of fed into that idea. Mm, well, he certainly thought he'd won, <laughs> didn't he? Um, our Washington correspondent, Chris Chermack, was here in London when it happened. I remember us having various editorial meetings. Well, he joins us on the line now from D.C. Chris, how's the day being marked there? Uh, well, Georgina, the day here is it being marked depending on, I guess, which side you're on, to be perfectly honest, which which is is perhaps not surprising given given what's happened here over the last couple of years. Democrats mark the day um, on Capitol Hill uh, with a sort of salute to the Capitol Hill police in particular who passed away. They did that on the steps of Capitol Hill. Joe Biden will be also marking this day issuing medals to various people that played roles on that day. But then at the same time, I'd say it was interesting, you know, as we'll be speaking about, the a vote, another vote for the speaker is currently going on in the House. And before that started, or at least as it started, when the first people were um, announcing, essentially anointing, once again, nominating uh, Kevin McCarthy for speaker, the Republican Garcia did not mention January 6th specifically. He briefly just said something along the lines of that he wanted to uh, thank Capitol Police. He said that in a more general way about for, for helping us defend the Republic, to which the entire House of Representatives stood and clapped, but without an actual mention of January 6th itself. So it does show you uh, some of the differences uh, between the two sides here, uh, even two years later. And I can tell you as well, uh, Georgina, you know, I heard you all talking about uh, sort of what you were doing on that day, how you remember it. Um, you know, it, it's sort of entering history at this point two years later, but one little interesting tidbit for you of how raw this still is. If you go to the Capitol today, if you visit, if you do one of their tours, the tour guides have been instructed not to mention January 6th to people who take the tour. They will uh, discuss it if asked by people on the tour, but they have been instructed that it is essentially too volatile, too too difficult to to talk about. You don't want to sort of rile up, I guess, um, any people that are that are with you on the tour. So they will not be including it as part of history yet. Perhaps that's because, you know, History is is certainly still ongoing at this mm. point. And I mean, it's such a divisive subject. And in fact, we're seeing this playing out in, in Congress right now. I mean, as you say, this comes at the end of a remarkable week for Washington, when so far members of the US House of Representatives have failed to elect a speaker 11 times uh, with an ongoing vote at the moment. Can you bring us up to speed? 
Yes, I can, Georgina. I mean, so I'm, I am watching as I speak to you, and it is the first, uh, frankly, interesting vote that we have had, perhaps since the first one. So, you know, there have been, we're, we're now on the 12th vote for speaker. Uh, the first one was, of course, interesting to see just how much support there would be for Kevin McCarthy, and about 20 Republicans um, did not elect, uh, did not nominate or agree to nominate Kevin McCarthy as speaker. And that number has held pretty steady throughout the last few days, which has been really quite incredible. But today, I have to say, as I'm watching, the first dominoes are falling. It is the first sign of progress for Kevin McCarthy at the moment. And this is because he reached a compromise with some in this, in the, of these Republican holdouts to basically change the rules of, of how Congress will be run. Things like he reduced to just one member of Congress, one member of the House, the number of people who could challenge him as Speaker at any point in the next two years and call for a vote for Speaker once again. This was something he'd been resisting for a long time. He'd already agreed to reduce that number to five that had to come together to challenge the Speaker. So that's now down at one. He agreed to give members of the Freedom Caucus, who are an important, uh, you know, a crucial block uh, of, of the sort of most conservative members of Congress. About half of them are these 20 who have been resisting Kevin McCarthy. He agreed to give them more power to be part of the Rules Committee, which decides how different bills in Congress are, are brought to the floor. And that really seems to have made a difference. And uh, I have to say, though, at the same time, uh, Georgina, What's been interesting about this is, frankly, those who oppose Kevin McCarthy, you can put into two camps. Those that say this is about the rules and this is about how Congress is run, and those that say we simply don't trust Kevin McCarthy as a human being and we therefore will never vote for him. Um, and that's the divide we are currently seeing. As we speak, I can now count here. One, two, we've reached about 10, I believe. Uh, members of those 20 who have now voted for Kevin McCarthy. And each time one of them changes, there is a loud cheer among the Republican caucus um, for their changed votes. And some of them are quite significant. Chip Roy, he's a congressman who has been kind of leading these negotiations. He just voted in favor of Kevin McCarthy. And then some of the very strong holdouts, even Ralph Norman of South Carolina, he voted in favor of Kevin McCarthy. That said, Georgina, to end on this, I know it's a very long answer, but there are still a number of holdouts, which means that Kevin McCarthy will not become speaker on this round. At current count, there are seven Republicans that have still voted not to elect Kevin McCarthy as speaker. That is too much. He needs to get only four to vote against him. Um, and whether he can ever really reach that number, whether these seven, and there could be a few more that haven't voted yet, whether they will ever change their minds on Kevin McCarthy is an open question, frankly. Chris Chermak in Washington, thanks very much for the time being. I think we'll come back to you later just to check in on the result of that of that vote. Laura, by modern day standards, this is extreme. I mean, we're all shocked by it. But actually, historically, there is a precedent. No, so when this first happened, we kept saying this hasn't happened in a century. And that was in 1923 when it took nine rounds of voting. But that's still not the precedent because there was one that took even longer. It took two months and 133 ballots. 
ballots to elect a speaker, and that was in 1855. So, gosh knows, we're going to <laughs> keep going with this for two months. I worry about Chris Chermak there. Well, and it means no government. I mean, and nobody can make any decisions. These people are still being paid, but they're not doing their job. Uh, Tom, McCarthy seems to be backed by Donald Trump and Joe Biden sensibly in Kentucky. He was photographed today with a, a bipartisan group. How would you describe the former and current president's reaction to this fiasco in the House? The two figures are, are so important in this story. And, and you just mentioned that no business is happening. And because no business is happening, this is a great thing for Biden because the Republicans really wanted to start. 2023 by just going in and upsetting upsetting the party. Um, so they're getting quite frustrated that it's business as usual and Biden's administration is going unchecked. So essentially, he's sitting quite pretty, which is why the White House said that uh, Biden would not insert himself, that's their words, not mine, uh, into the sort of speaker election. So even though the White House has said Biden's not going to insert himself, uh, they have no control over him, do they? He always speaks out of turn. And he has been speaking out of turn. Uh, he has been saying that um, the rest of the world is looking and it's quite embarrassing. And, and he made some sort of sassy comments that, uh, you know, it's not his problem. Um, so, of course, he ended with what we've seen in the UK politicians say, what I'm focused on is getting things done. So he's he's been very sort of diplomatic, but clearly it's something that he's relishing, but from a distance. Mm. Um Trump is also fascinating because, as we've just been talking uh, about, the ultra-conservatives believe McCarthy is not conservative enough or tough to take the battle to Biden. So despite many of the rebels being among Trump's strongest supporters, uh, the former president has renewed his public calls for, for Republicans to vote for McCarthy. Uh, I've, I've just got a tweet here. I, I want to do an impression of him, but I'm not going to. Please. No, he says, no, he says, close the deal, take the victory. Um, and he thinks that McCarthy will do a good job. Um, so McCarthy is aligned to Trump, but this may be the kiss of death because an endorsement from Trump is not what it used to be. And as we saw during the midterms with Trump endorsing more than sort of 40 candidates, they all underperformed. So his star may have faded. Mm. On this. And Laura, do you think that the world is still looking to the US as an example of a, a good democratic government. I don't think so, Georgina. And I think it comes down to three basic points on this. Number one, we know that the world is watching anytime a presidential election happens. And due to the electoral college system, you know, Hillary Clinton won a, a million more votes than Donald Trump did. And I think the rest of the world kind of watches as the majority picks somebody and then somebody else gets in. Number one, that's one thing. We've also seen very big examples of gerrymandering specifically by the Republican Party, where they try to stop certain demographics. And, you know, in, nine, in 2020, it was the biggest... Um, uh, highest voter turnout. And that was partly because there were a lot of paper ballots. It was still during COVID times. And so people were electronic voting, were paper paper ballot voting. And, and then the Republican Party put out this message that you that cannot be trusted, neither the machines nor the forms of, of doing it by mail. And we see examples of gerrymandering in, in different ways. And then finally, I, I think people are also confused by, you know, the majority as an example, the majority of Republicans, the population in America supports things like abortion. And yet then we have things that happen with the Supreme Court where they uh, uh, members get into office and pick, you know, very conservative or very liberal people on the Supreme Court. And then 
these people's decisions don't matter, as in the actual population, because ultimately, nine people on the Supreme Court make decisions that then affect more than 300 million people. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it does seem extraordinary that the US can retain the high moral ground when it comes to democracy, when we look at the children's playground squabble it's become. But Washington apparently still feels in a position to lecture third world countries, as it's just done to Rwanda, joining with the EU to demand the country stops aiding M23 rebels. And it also denounced the DRC army collaborating with armed groups such as the Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Rwanda. Well, to explain what's going on there, I'm joined by Phil Clark, who's Professor of International Politics at SOAS University of London, specialising in conflicts in Central Africa. Uh, Phil, thanks very much for coming on. Now, both the DRC and Rwanda have long been mired in conflict. Can you give us the background to this particular situation? So the the background to this situation, Georgina, is is that there's this one major rebel group in eastern Congo called the M23. They're a a mainly a Tutsi rebel group. Um, In the past, they've been used both by Rwanda and Uganda to destabilise the Democratic Republic of Congo. And in the last few months, um, M23, which has been dormant for the last 10 years, has had this enormous resurgence uh, in eastern Congo, has committed large-scale massacres, uh, has been displacing uh, the population and, and is really destabilizing uh, the region as a whole. And, and, and that's the reason that both the US and the EU have, have called on Rwanda to try to rein M23 in, uh, in just the last couple of days. So this is a, a real escalation of a long-standing conflict in eastern Congo. Uh, now, there are allegations, and I wonder if there's any evidence that the Rwandan government under Paul Kagame is involved in this. So we've seen a a UN group of experts report come out in the last couple of days, which has accused Rwanda of backing uh, the M23 rebels. Rwanda has some form uh, in this regard, that if we go back to 2012, when M23 emerged, um, evidence came to light that showed that Rwanda was arming uh, this militia, it was providing uniforms, even uh, providing some uh, military intelligence uh, to the rebels. And it does look like we're seeing a a similar situation again uh, in 2022 and 2023. So, so there is some evidence in that group of experts' report. I think it should be said too that that the experts' report has has perhaps over-egged the situation. I think they almost make it sound like M23 are only a puppet of the Rwandan government. In fact, it's a rebel group that has has its own objectives and, and its own uh, way of going about conflict on the ground. It doesn't have to hang around waiting for <clears throat> Kagame to give it orders. It, it very much has a, a life of its own. So I think the experts are right to say that Rwanda is playing some sort of role with the rebel group, but perhaps they've exaggerated the extent to which the group is is a proxy of the Rwandan state. And, And what's the role of the UN and how have international troops been caught up in all of this? One of the key dynamics in the last couple of months, Georgina, is that uh, the East African community has sent its own armed forces to Eastern Congo. Now, this is deeply embarrassing for the UN uh, and all of its international backers. It shows that that despite the fact that the UN have had a peacekeeping mission on the ground in Eastern Congo for the last 20 years, it really has failed uh, to quell the conflict or to protect civilians. And so the neighbouring countries have got frustrated with this. Um, Kenya and Uganda in particular have cobbled together this East African force and they're on the ground at the moment, both trying to stop this uh, violence uh, conducted by the M23 and and also trying to protect civilians. So so really it shows once again just how inept the UN has been at at trying to do all of those things. And given the US interference and the chaos in Washington, does anyone in the region really care what 
America thinks? To, to be honest, they, they don't, Georgina. I, I think if, if you look at the noises uh, coming out of Kigali at the moment, that there's a, a real sense of disdain uh, for both uh, the US and the EU. Um, if you listen to what the Rwandan government's been saying in the last couple of weeks, that they've really called out the hypocrisy of, of, of those uh, two political entities and basically said that both the US and the EU have meddled uh, in this region uh, in the past. Uh, they've backed various uh, rebel groups um, themselves. They themselves are seen as sources of destabilization. So who are they really now to, to try to, to talk to the governments of this region? Um, the, the other aspect, I think, of, of this conflict, and, and your introduction pointed to it, is also a, a sense from Rwanda's side that they're frustrated that the US and the EU have almost nothing to say about the Congolese government's uh, involvement with the FDLR and, and, and other Hutu rebel groups, um, that they accuse the Congolese government of getting into bed with these rebel movements. Um, committing violence across the border in Rwanda and also destabilizing the situation. So there seems to be a, a double standard here that Rwanda's being accused of this kind of meddling, but the Congolese government is uh, supposedly allowed to, to plough on and, and, and continue to do what it's been doing for the last 10 or 15 years. Phil, thank you very much indeed. That's Phil Clark of SOAS there. Well, who gives weapons to whom has long been a source of contention. Rwanda arming rebels in the DRC has been condemned, but French tanks or US HIMARS going to Ukraine are seen as good, at least by Ukraine and its Western allies. But this isn't a universal truth. The online service Sign My Rocket allows users to pay to donate weapons and ammunition to the Ukrainian army with a personalised message. Tom, tell us more about this story, particularly in Finland, where it's caused an absolute storm. Yeah, so as you said, Sign My Rocket is a service that allows people to donate so they can have their inscriptions on these missiles. And so far, it's raised $750,000. But the money has gone to uh, buy less explosive things like cars uh, and Starlink terminals that help people connect to the internet um, for as little as $150. You can have your own howitzer shell with your name on it. Um, but what we're seeing today for the first time is influential public figures using the service and then going on social media to show the product of which. Um, so in Finland, as you said, said um, Sophie Oksanen, she has a huge following. She posted one of her signed missiles stating that she used the money she would have spent on fireworks on a signed missile, which has this implication of a different type of firework. Um, she defended her actions, saying that humour and irony and anecdotes are forms of resistance, but many felt that it glamorises an idealised killing. Um, So this has triggered a big debate, particularly in her own Twitter feed. Mm. Laura, what's your feeling on this? Is it ever acceptable to personalise it? I don't know. You know, growing up in Romania, we had a lot of Russian jokes because we have our own history with the Soviet Union and Russia in particular. So I see her point about the humor. I think one of the worst things that have come from Russia's war in Ukraine is how Putin has targeted civilian infrastructure and civilians in particular. And I think my biggest, I guess, question about this whole thing is if civilians are are paying for and buying these these messages does that blur the lines between civilian and military how does that work is it i guess it just poses a lot of questions doesn't it absolutely i mean tom if the rockets reach their targets does it matter who sent them yeah, I um I think it all matters. I think all deaths matter. I, I listening to 
the coverage of, of Prince Harry's new book where he says he killed 25 and he doesn't seem that bothered about it. You can't help but think that all lives have this big trail of families and relationships and I think everyone's impacted. And just like the war that he was in, the war in Afghanistan, that was the kind of first war where emotional and physical distance was all sort of removed. It was all sort of Xbox remote warfare that mm. creates this kind of coldness towards deaths and enemies and civilians. And this is sort of an extension of that. And as Laura said, uh, the West seems to be sort of getting engaged with this because uh, what appeals to foreigners is that anyone with a historical grievance against Moscow is jumping upon it. You know, they're using Ukraine as their proxy, so it doesn't feel particularly authentic. Uh, I would suggest sponsoring a goat or sponsoring a toilet. My toilet is twinned with one in Zambia. I find anything to do with weapons problematic. If, if I'm not going to buy it for my grandma, I'm not going to buy it at all. I love the idea that your toilet's twinned with another toilet. We're managing to get toilets into the show every time I'm on. <laughs> <laughs> this is not my fault, I would point out. I'm sorry. I, I wake up to it. There's a picture of it. It's this lovely little wooden toilet. Mine is, is a bit more modern, but it, it is officially twinned and it brings me joy each day. I don't think a missile with my name on it will bring me joy. No, no. Well, Zambia, of course, would be a great travel destination. Ukraine is off the tourist list for all but the most hardened war reporter this season, but there are plenty of other destinations to appeal. As this weekend sees sunny Saturday, the day which, at least before COVID, was one of the busiest days of the year for holiday bookings. Well, we know there's a huge cost of living crisis, but travel firms seem confident that people will still go on holiday, perhaps to visit their toilets in far-flung places. According to research by the industry body ABTA, around three in five people are planning to go abroad this year, which is extraordinary. I mean, Tom, at the beginning of the show, you told us that on the 6th of January 2022, you were in Mexico and you talked about those manta rays. And I mean, there is something about having an experience abroad that you could not possibly capture here at home. Absolutely. And I have to say the Yucatan Peninsula, which is where I went, brought me everything. It brought me all the experiences I was looking for. And actually, this part of the world was the top travel destination in 2020, overtaking Paris and Rome, partly because of its COVID restriction measures being quite lapsed, but also because it has so much uh, that appeals to tourists. I was being quite cheap. I wanted to go to Mexico. Mexico City was too expensive to fly to, so I flew, flew to Cancun. And I just discovered a wealth uh, of enjoyment there from the sort of Mayan temples, which are the best in Mexico in that area, uh, to the food, which goes beyond the kind of American guacamole and fajitas, uh, to the island, the Isla Majors and Cozumel, where I did the diving. Um, and there's this great thing called a cenote. I don't know if you know, there are uh, swimming holes created by the meteor that killed all the dinosaurs, creates these big holes in the ground, limestone, beautiful things. You'd have seen them on Instagram. Uh, and they are these new kind of places that people are, are flying to to take that perfect picture and have the perfect swim. Sounds absolutely amazing. I've, I've not been there. Um, what about Egypt, Laura? Because that's another very popular destination. Have you been there? I have been there. I was actually there for the Elguna Film Festival in Egypt. And we went, uh, we had we had an accident at sea, actually, on the Red Sea, but we went snorkeling to see, to see all this 
beautiful wildlife. And then afterwards, we got back into the boat, and the boat crashed with another boat. And then these captains were yelling at each other. And we're all just sitting there, like, please, can we just get off? But nobody was hurt. It was a very minor crash. (laughs) That is one thing I remember. But yeah, Elguna was a lot of fun. Have you been there? Yeah, Egypt's going to be a big one on the travel list uh, because the Egyptian Museum, which I went to, which was pretty awful, is being replaced with the Grand Egyptian Museum. The foundation stone was laid as far back as 2002, but it's finally going to be finished in 2023. Um, And that would change the trip for me because I went thinking I could backpack through Egypt. You cannot backpack through (laughs) Egypt. It's impossible. Uh, The transport, the the chaos. Uh, But I think once they finally bridge this gap between between uh, Giza, which is where the pyramids are, and Cairo, which is where all the flights come in with this new museum, I think it'll be a much more palatable place to visit. Mm, I mean, I had a horrible experience there, I have to say. (laughs) But I think partly because it was my honeymoon and I clearly should never have married that particular person. (laughs) Uh, And there's the issue, everyone gets food poisoning in Egypt. Well, particularly on a boat. So we'd we'd booked this cruise and I wasn't living in Britain at the time. I came straight from Zimbabwe, so I had not seen any of these kind of I didn't know about sort of cheap travel things like that. We thought we were booking this glamorous Egyptian boat. Subsequently, I packed all my white linen. I thought it was going to be very Agatha Christie. And it was awful. And there were all these horrible drinking games and nights where you had to dress up as, you know, I don't know, Nefertiti or something. And it was it was appalling, I have to say. But that is not to slur Egypt. That was entirely my fault. Wrong choice of man, wrong choice of boat, uh, and not Egypt's fault at all. Um, I just actually want to break off for a minute here because we've got Chris Chermak on the line and I'd like to just know what our, uh, what the latest is from, from Congress, Chris. Georgina, I really don't want to interrupt. It's a fascinating conversation <laughs> you're having. Um, but the, the vote that we were talking about right at the beginning of this show has now ended and I can tell you it was a fascinating vote, very significant movement. Uh, 14 members of the, of the holdouts ended up voting for Kevin McCarthy seven voted against Kevin McCarthy for other people. So he still does not have the numbers in order to get elected. But, you know, this is what he was looking for. It's the kind of movement he was looking for in order to keep his speakership bid alive. Uh, Most people are still saying uh, that at this moment that they don't think they have the votes today, although they are likely to go straight back into another round of voting. Uh, Now, you know, the war of attrition and pressure games begin to try and pull some of those seven to either vote for Kevin McCarthy or even to simply vote present or to to not show up. That that would be enough in order to sort of reduce the threshold that Kevin McCarthy needs uh, to win. So it'll be an exciting day, potentially an exciting weekend here uh, in Washington to see whether we have some kind of resolution by Monday morning. Yeah, Chris, before you go, your favourite travel destination? My favourite travel destination? Uh, you know, I think I've talked about this on the show before, but the one that comes to mind for a reason of fortuitousness is Gibraltar, just because I discovered that they celebrate their national day on my birthday, and I went there during the pandemic, having had no idea that that was the case, and I, I really enjoyed the place. So the I, whole I, country celebrated you. <laughs> how the fantastic. whole country, the whole country <laughs> celebrates on my birthday. I mean, how much more luck can you have than that? Uh, Chris, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Tom, you're pulling a face. You clearly don't like Gibraltar. <laughs> I'd have to dissuade listeners from travelling there. It is the worst of the British seaside in Spain. 
And I did not have a very good visit there myself. Okay, but Singapore, can we say something good about that? Oh, absolutely. So Singapore, it's going to have a huge art boom in the next year. It's already happening right now with fairs happening. And not just that, it's just a really cool city. In fact, there is going to be three additional, like three flights a day from London to Singapore from Heathrow. And that's only happening for a very short period of time because they're reopening. Everybody's really excited about getting back out there again. And I think they're also about to have a big boom in tourism thanks to China reopening on Sunday. And it's one of the few countries Singapore is that is not going to be requiring a negative COVID test for for people coming in. So definitely looking forward to Singapore. Although my favorite place in the world is Switzerland. And oh, well, that's, I mean, Switzerland's great, isn't it? I mean, out of that, I think we agree, San Moritz is San Moritz. extraordinary. Yes, and that's that's where I need to go this year because I've been to a bunch of Swiss cities recently, haven't been to Sw- uh, San Moritz in a while, and one of my friends just had twins. Need to go visit the twins. Absolutely. Well, I was in San Moritz last year uh, for a Monocle event. I was interviewing the uh, the Dutch author, um, Ilya Leonard Pfeiffer, who is amazing. You need to listen back to that interview on, on Meet the Writers. Also, there was a, a piece in the magazine with him because he's just the most most extraordinary man who's written this wonderful book called Grand Hotel Europa. Um, But because I'm African, I had never been to a ski resort before and I've never skied and I've never been on a ski lift. Uh, So my first experience of a ski lift was Tyler Brule grabbing me by the arm and plonking me on the ski lift, put his arm around me and off we went with me squealing... And the people in front of us turning to take pictures of us. And it was extraordinary, but he did buy us several bottles of Bollinger at the top. So it was kind of all worth it. Oh, that's nice. Um, And in fact, we're going to repeat the experience this March because uh, we're planning another um, uh, literary uh, jaunt to San Moritz where I'm already looking for great authors who've got work coming out in end of March, beginning of April, uh, particularly people from Europe or America. Uh, So if you are one of those, you should get in touch because we're going to have this wonderful uh, session in San Moritz. And Laura, I think you should put in your bid to be the producer for that right now. I'm doing it. <laughs> I already have the links. Now, most of my trips are designed around work. In the first three months this year, as I say, I'll be uh, chairing events in Switzerland, but also in Australia and in Pakistan. But I did just take a work-free trip to New York. So although I didn't file anything, luckily we have our correspondent, Henry Reese Sheridan, there. In his letter from New York this week, he looks at a man whose uh, pants are an inferno. It's January the 3rd, 2022. You're a security guard in the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. Today, you're patrolling the service hallways in the basement. Usually, this is a relatively quiet shift. You watch caterers and contractors come and go. Occasionally, you offer them a friendly nod. Suddenly, a man turns the corner at the far end of the corridor you're in. He's wearing a navy suit and walking towards you. He doesn't look relaxed, and as he draws closer, you're willing to revise that evaluation upwards. He looks well and truly flustered. Soon enough, you find out why. Following just a second or two behind is a gaggle of journalists screaming questions at him. You're able to distinguish a few of the specific questions amid the general din. Why did you lie about your family background? Did you really attend Baruch College in New York City? Will you apologize 
for falsely claiming that four people who died at the 2016 Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando were your employees. Can you respond to allegations that you never actually worked at Goldman Sachs or Citigroup, as you have claimed? What accounts for these bizarre questions they're asking him? By now, you're more than a little concerned. What kind of person is this? And why is he being pursued by the Fourth Estate through the service corridors of the Capitol building? You realize he's trying to escape into the elevator at the end of the hallway, and you are standing between him and his goal. But you know the elevator is a service elevator and doesn't lead to anywhere this man should be. It's time for you to step in and earn your keep. Other way, sir, you say to the man in a polite but firm tone while waving your arms to shoo him back to where he came from. The man slows his walk slightly. He says nothing, but he looks at you and his eyes plead to please let him pass. You feel sorry for him. You're only human after all. But you've sworn an oath to protect the legislature of your nation. And that includes preventing the misuse of service elevators. I'm sorry, sir, you say to him. Other way, please. The man realises he's been thwarted. The beseeching look in his eyes fades and is replaced with an exhausted blankness. You watch him turn around and get absorbed into the scrum of reporters. They haven't stopped yelling questions at him this whole time. You consider the possibility that perhaps they never will. That was a dramatisation of George Santos's first day in Congress. Last November, Santos was elected to represent New York's third congressional district, covering parts of North Long Island and a little bit of Queens. Santos really was chased around the Capitol building by reporters this week. He really did get lost in the service basement. And he really was directed away by a security guard when he tried to escape into an elevator. But he brought all of this on himself. Santos has spun possibly the most wide-ranging and intricate web of lies ever fabricated by a person elected to the US House of Representatives. The porkies pertain to his education, family background, work history, philanthropic activities and ethnicity. There's more, way more. You should look up for yourself how many lies he's told. It'll blow your mind. So how could the good people of New York's 3rd Congressional District have put their trust in him? It's because they didn't know about Santos's lying when they elected him. Almost as shocking as Santos's fabrications themselves is the fact that they didn't start to be properly investigated and revealed until after he was elected. Consider the mechanisms and stakeholders that are meant to hold people running for election to account. There's Santos's own Republican Party, his Democratic opponent and the Democratic Party, the media and independent watchdogs. You'd expect at least one of them to catch the fabrications. To my mind, there are three main reasons why Santos has been able to get this far. The first is that the lies he told were extremely big and broad. This made it difficult to see the trees for the wood. Most of the time, people are looking to catch specific lies in areas where dissimulation might be reasonably expected to bring a clear benefit to the liar. 
Lies such as the country your grandparents come from are less likely to be called out. Most people simply deem it reasonable to give others the benefit of the doubt that they're telling the truth about matters that are so general and of such limited relevance to most people. The second is the Republicans' reluctance to hold Santos to account. Who knows how much Republican leadership knew about Santos before? What's certain is that they've remained remarkably quiet about Santos since his lives have been revealed. And the third reason it took so long for Santos to be caught is a media phenomenon that was explained well by the journalist Errol Lewis when he appeared on CNN. What, what happened to the local media that it didn't catch all of these lies or were not interested enough or I, I don't know, you tell well, you me. You know, I, 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 I've asked that very question. Uh, there, there are, there's at least a, a paper, I believe, in Oyster Bay mm -hmm. that actually did yes. catch some of this and did publish some of it. But the way things work is that it's gotta be sort of moved up the chain. You know, I mean, I'm based in New York City, Spectrum News. We're, a small piece of this district is in New York City, so we sort of paid Queens. some attention to it, Queens. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't our thing. We said, well, we'll let the newspapers and the, the folks out in Long Island, they'll have the main piece of it. And, you know, a local paper did, but it didn't get moved up to, say, I don't know, News 12 or whatever the local cable station is. And, News the, 12. The, and then, the, you know, you have the, the, the big network affiliates who are covering the metro area, which is all of New York City, plus a little piece of Long Island. So it wasn't anybody in particular's job. And it was only really after the New York Times focused on it. It just happened to be after the election that you started to get the investigative resources and the, 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 the sort of the breadth and the reach. And so this is, you know, another chapter in the long-standing tragedy of the collapse or the decline of local news. Remarkably, despite all his lies, Santos may well end up serving a full two-year term as a representative. There's no mechanism for automatically ejecting a member of the House just because they're a massive fibber. Journalists will continue to pursue him who knows how far. One thing's for sure, Santos can't run away to Brazil, where both his parents are from and where he lived for a period as a teenager. On Monday, Brazilian prosecutors announced they are reopening a fraud case against Santos. In 2008, he allegedly spent $700 in a clothing store just outside Rio using a stolen checkbook and a false name. It seems that old habits die hard. And that was our New York radio correspondent, Henry Reese Sheridan. And that's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thanks to all my guests, Chris Chermack, Laura Kramer, Tom Webb and Phil Clark. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Parmentuin. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean with editing assistance from Adam Heaton. The Daily's back at the same time on Monday. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>